Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 267 with Tara Moore. I think you'll appreciate Tara because of her deep wisdom, and not, not just the wisdom that comes from her education at Yale, Stanford, and the Coaches Training Institute, which are very impressive places, but rather the wisdom that comes from the real experience of working with folks who are dealing with issues associated with fear and self-doubt, etc. So good. So you'll learn, one, the key drivers behind fear and self-doubt. Two, a handy Hebrew distinction for thinking about fear. And three, how to consult your inner critic and your inner mentor wisely. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F267. And while you're there, I hope to check out some of our cool stuff. One cool thing I'll point you to is our gold nugget email list. So if you enjoy the show and find yourself thinking, ooh, I'd love to take some notes there, but you're running, you're driving, you just don't have the opportunity to put that pen to paper. We do it for you digitally, summarizing the good, actionable insights, sending them to your inbox each day that there is a new episode. So that's the, the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Tara's story. Tara Moore is an expert on leadership and well-being. She helps people play bigger in sharing their voices and bringing forward their ideas in work and in life. Tara is the author of Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead. But gentlemen, it's okay. It's great stuff for us too. And it's been named a best book of the year by Apple's iBooks and is now in paperback. In the book, she shares her pioneering model for making the journey from playing small being held back by fear and self-doubt, to playing big, taking bold action to pursue what you see as your callings. Here is Tara. Tara, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, I learned something fun about you, which is that as a child, your dreams were analyzed each morning with your parents along with breakfast. What's the story here? (laughs) Yeah, I think I was very fortunate to grow up with a mom who was very interested in psychology and self-improvement and believed she could start conversations about those things with me as a young child. And so at a very young age, she would say, did you have a dream last night? And then she would ask me about it and she would explain to me that the different characters in the dream could be different parts of myself or there were symbols and she would get out a yellow pad and we would diagram it and she'd talk to me about archetypes. And that's how I grew up. That was just one example of how she brought, you know, the kind of conversation you have on this podcast. I was really lucky to grow up with that as an everyday matter in my house. That is so cool. You know, <laughs> Tara, last night I dreamt that I got shot by a gun twice (laughs) in different places. One was in just a uh, value-priced hotel, and the other was in my childhood home recovering from the first (laughs) gunshot. Okay, that's very interesting. We could could really dive into that. (laughs) And how did you feel in the dream after that? Well, I didn't like it. You know, actually, I woke up at 4.30 a.m. against my will, (laughs) and uh, I was a little riled up. It took a while to calm down and fall back asleep. Yeah. Have you ever heard the Buddhist phrase, the second arrow? You heard that? Ooh, no. Tell me about it. So that it sounds very much like related to what happened in your dream. So so there's this idea of 
you know, in life, there are things that wound us or there are feelings we have that are hurt. And that's the first arrow. But then we often impose the second arrow of our reaction or the story that we make up about what happened or the shame or guilt we have or the self-judgments we have for having the feelings we have. So that whole idea of being shot twice is interesting. And of course, I would ask, you know, did something that hurt or wounded you and then you went back to, you know, in your literal childhood home or kind of in your family self, was there something in the recovery process that wounded you further? That would be the first place I would look. Well, nothing is leaping to mind, but I'll definitely chew on that and see what, what happens uh, as, <laughs> as I explore, because we, we could spend a full <laughs> conversation on that alone. <laughs> <laughs> we could. And that's actually dream interpretation, although part of my childhood is really not the center of my work now. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, tell us about your, your most recent book, Playing Big. What's the, the main idea here and, and why is it important? Yeah. Well, I found when I went into the working world, I, I had come out of graduate school. I had had the benefit of a good education. I was a academically oriented and achievement oriented person. And I was very surprised to find that I didn't feel confident in those first years uh, in the working world. I didn't feel comfortable sharing my ideas or my voice. And I also wasn't really going for what I really wanted with my career. I was kind of in a job that was fine, but not great but didn't really relate to the creative dreams or the entrepreneurial dreams that I had for myself. And I was really curious about why I was getting so stuck around that. And then I knew I wanted to do work in the personal growth world, partly informed by how I grew up. And I got trained as a coach and I started coaching people just in the early mornings before I would go to work or sometimes in the evenings, on the weekends, around my regular job. And I saw again and again, actually at all stages of career, my clients grappling with the same thing self-doubt, not trusting their ideas and their voice, not really going for what they really wanted to do and believing there was some reason they couldn't. And I got really interested in this question of why do we play small and how can we play bigger? And my definition of playing big is it's being more loyal to your dreams than your fears. So it's whatever that means to you. It's not necessarily anything that would look quote unquote big in the eyes of the world, but you know, it's the real challenge, the real work for you to live that life or do that work. It's an individual matter of discernment. And so I started to make that the focus of my coaching practice. How can people play bigger in that way? What are the tools and ideas that help us? And I found there really were a set of things that made a transformational impact. And so that became kind of an arc that I would take my clients through. And then I started teaching large groups that um, all around the world. And then it became the topic of the book. And now for 10 years, I've really been immersed in working with people around defining what playing big means for them. And then most importantly, doing the day-to-day practices and work to bring that vision into reality. Okay, cool. Well, it, I like that that simple distinction then, more so about your dreams than your fears. And it really kind of puts it into focus in a hurry in terms of, oh, what are, what's my thinking right now? The patterns, who's sort of got the upper hand. And so I'd love to get your view then when it comes to these fears or, or lack of confidence and, and self-doubt, what are some of the, the key drivers 
behind it? Why is that there and and what should be done about it? Yeah. Well, I think that we all have a very strong safety instinct inside of us. And the safety instinct is a primal part of us that, that is a very deep part of our wiring to be on the lookout for any possible danger or threat and make sure that we avoid it or we fight it, right? And our fight or flight instinct is there to make sure that if we see any possible risk to our survival, we go into fight or flight mode and we make sure we're conquering in some way or we're avoiding. And what we know now is that in our contemporary lives, that same safety instinct gets misapplied to the emotional risks in our life. So the safety instinct that should be very conservative and overreactive if it's trying to ensure the physical survival of people who are threatened by lots of predators or warring tribes or poisons as our predecessors were, that instinct is now operating when we face everyday risks like the risk of failure, the risk of feeling really uncomfortable, the risk of worrying, you know, we might feel like a beginner or feel clueless or be embarrassed or do something that really rocks the boat among our friends and family. And that safety instinct then tries to do everything it can to get us to stay in the comfort zone of the known or the familiar. And that includes making up a lot of narratives that feel believable, but that aren't true. Like you aren't qualified for that. Who do you think you are? You're not enough of an expert in that. There's too many other people doing that. All those inner critic narratives we hear are really manifestations of the safety instinct. And the good news about that is it means that our inner critic is not going anywhere. And I know you have many listeners who are a little bit more in the earlier phases of their careers. And I think this is is so game-changing to understand early that confidence doesn't actually come in an enduring way with experience. There was just a study done through KPMG that looked at confidence levels among professional women. And they looked at how many women early in their career would say they're confident. And then how many executive level women, senior women would say they feel confident in their work. And the difference between those two groups was only about 10% in terms of how many indicated they were confident. In other words, experience didn't change it because when you get into a, a new senior role, Sure, you're more confident about some things that you did a long time ago and you've been doing for a long time, but you have a new edge and the voice of the inner critic and self-doubt comes up again because that safety instinct is perceiving more emotional risk, no matter what the situation. And so we're really not looking to get rid of the inner critic or find some unfailing sense of confidence. The playing big process is in part about learning how do you hear your inner critic, let it be there, know it's always going to be there when you're doing important work, and just not take direction from it. Okay, thank you. So that is powerful to assimilate that really inside your psyche there. The inner critic, as you said, it doesn't go away. The KPMG study is is pointing to that. And in a way, that kind of unmasks everything. (laughs) It does. And you know, there are so many lies we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, well, when I get to this stage in my career, then I'm going to feel confident. We also tell ourselves, if I get that additional certification or degree, 
then these uncomfortable feelings of self-doubt or uncertainty or fear will go away. We tell ourselves, you know, if my weight changes and it's this amount, then I'm going to feel confident getting up and sharing my, my point of view in front of a group, right? We fill a lot of things into that blank. And what we're really doing there is making it convenient for ourselves to put risks on hold, put playing bigger on hold, um, put really stepping into our gifts and using our, our natural talents and gifts more, which is actually a very vulnerable thing. Put that on hold, thinking something is going to come along that's going to bring confidence, but it doesn't. And what we want to do is really learn to work effectively, live effectively with the voice of self-doubt letting it be there, but not taking direction from it, not letting it make our decisions. That's so powerful. And so then it's implication is that you're going to feel some lack of confidence and some self-doubt until the day you die, right? And Hopefully, right? And, right? <laughs> and hope, I say hopefully because it comes up most strongly when you are on the edge of your comfort zone. So if if for those who might be sitting there right now thinking, you know, I don't really hear my inner critic that much, I would ask you two things. One, make sure you're looking across all areas of your life because sometimes people will think, you know, I kind of got it down at work, but then they'll realize, oh my gosh, you know, in my dating life or in my parenting or my body image or I'd love to play music again, but I have that voice in my head saying da 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 da, right? So look across all areas of your life. But second, Notice where that lack of inner critic is just kind of a dead-end part of your life where you are not pushing yourself to an edge. You're not doing what really matters to you. You're not being loyal to those dreams. Um, the inner critic will come up when there's vulnerability. And so if, you've, if you're doing something that is 100% in your comfort zone and routine to you and not very important to you, you might not hear it, but that's not a good thing. Okay, I'm with you there. And so then I also want to get your view then. Now, there's a bit of a postponement factor, like the way that the inner critic it can, can sound in terms of, hey, if this changes, if I lost the weight, if I got the certification, if I had a certain preparation, then I would feel confident. And, and so now, if for the most part, if that seems like, you know, that is often a lie. It is a deception that is destructive. But at the same time, there are times in which, no, you really are not prepared for that opportunity or that dream that you're thinking about and some action, some, some preparation is necessary to get there. So I'd love your view on how could we prudently discern the difference and what's a, a wise means of thinking through that so that you, you get the valid prep steps done but you don't delay yourself till it never happens. Yeah. And it's so funny that you're asking that specific question because I just got off of our course call and we were exactly talking about this piece today. So there's a few things I'd offer around, around that. One is pay attention to the evidence that you're getting from the world. Are you getting clear, repeated information from the stakeholders that matter to you that you need more preparation. In other words, maybe you you want to offer a support group for moms and you do a trial day where you invite a few moms in your community to come together and you put together a great little program for them or whatever and then you put hand out feedback forms and you notice there's really a theme on the feedback forms that People felt like they wanted more content or more expertise. Or, and you hear again and again like that 
your audience is asking for a different level of preparation and knowledge for you, okay, then you have some evidence. But most people never get to that stage of even asking their intended audience for information. They make up a story in their head and it's usually a convenient story that allows them to hide a little bit that they need to do a lot more preparatory work. So that's one piece. Is it coming to you in real information and evidence from the outside world? Um, A second is what's the energy that you have or the beliefs that you have around that preparation? If you notice that in a very sort of in uh, joyful, light, abundant kind of energy, you feel like, I'm going to go learn more so I can do even more here. And this is going to be an enriching process for me. That can be a great thing to follow. But if you notice that you're feeling, I don't know enough until, or there's no way I could contribute any value until the sort of like, this will complete me. It's like the equivalent of the romantic, this will come <laughs> here. She will complete me feeling like notice that. And that's kind of a clue that you're probably putting a story there that is more about fear than about the external thing itself. And then a third thing I would offer is a real issue in our culture is that we we tend to put all the emphasis on expertise and have a, a kind of cultural narrative that the people who contribute value around a topic are the quote-unquote experts. And that's a view that's really enforced by our educational system, reinforced by our educational system that says, you know, if you want to do something in X topic, you want to do something around history, go get your degree in history. If you want to do something, you know, in serving kids, go get X degree. Like we're looking for what information do I need to absorb to be able to contribute value on that topic. And that is certainly important. And, you know, you're talking to someone who really values education and has a graduate degree. And I believe it's very important that we have those places to get expertise and we have experts in our culture. But on any given subject, there are people contributing value as the expert. Let's take, for example, let's take breast cancer. So we have our experts who have PhDs in breast cancer treatment and prevention and rehabilitation and so on. And they're playing a certain role. But then we have other people. We have people who are survivors who have different insights and a different sensibility and can contribute something different in terms of sharing a message, inspiring people, improving upon services, innovating, that that the experts can never bring what they can bring. And we have other people who I would call cross trainers who come from a completely different type of expertise. Maybe they come from the design world or the business world or the activism world, and they can take their lens and their expertise and look at a new topic. And because they don't have formal training in it and they're bringing a fresh lens, they add value in a different way. And I think we really de-emphasize those things. So that's another question when you're discerning as you're asking Pete, like, do I get more training? Part of it is who do I want to be? Is my calling to be the expert on this or is my calling to contribute value in a different way? And really, we can't discount how significant the value is that people contribute who are coming from that cross-trainer or survivor perspective, not from the formal expert perspective. Oh, so much good stuff. Okay, so so we've amassed a big lie. We've got uh, a nice distinction here associated with, uh, you know, is preparation necessary? 
and you know some indicators how the inner critic can be a useful indicator in terms of maybe pushing harder toward the edge. So that's a lot of great stuff. So now I'd like to zoom in, you know, sort of in the heat of battle. You're trying to do some bigger things and tell us, you know, what are are the particular fears that arise and your pro tips for responding to them? Well, I'll share a little bit about how I look at fear. And in the book, I call this a very old, new way of looking at fear, because I'm drawing here on two terms that are actually Old Testament, ancient Hebrew terms. These are two words that are used in the Old Testament to describe types of fear. And when I came across these, I kind of fell off my chair because I felt like they were so illustrative of what what I was seeing with my coaching clients, but I had never heard about them before. So let me walk you through the two. So the first word is pachad. And pachad is defined as the fear of projected things or imagined things. So this is when we imagine the worst case scenario of what could happen. It's when we project the movie of how things might play out. And most of the fear that you and I and our friends and colleagues experience on a day-to-day basis is this, right? We are imagining a potential outcome and feeling afraid. It's an anticipatory feeling. It is not usually about what's happening right now in this moment, but about what we fear could happen. We know, not from the Old Testament, but from all the biological and neuroscience research that has come since, that this kind of fear is generally overreactive and misleading. We know, for example, that when we learn to fear a particular thing through conditioning, let's say we we get bitten badly by a dog, and then the way the human responds to that, it works, we learn to fear of being bitten by a dog, we also know that we have a very generalizing response to that experience. So we won't just become afraid of that dog. We might become afraid of dogs in general. And in the foundational experiment that was done on this in the 1920s, they could actually see how by priming a baby to be afraid of a, a small white mouse. Baby initially was not afraid of the white mouse, but then they paired it with a very loud, startling noise. And, the, and so then the baby started to associate the two and would see the mouse and would have a fear response. But then the baby also became afraid of a white rabbit and a white cotton ball and a man with a white beard. <laughs> this is what we're also doing in our adult lives, right? Whether that's, you know, you had one negative relationship experience and now you're generalizing that a certain type of relationship or a certain type of person, you're going to fear that. Or maybe you did something in one professional environment that was met with really painful feedback and then you come to fear a whole set of associated things. So that associative quality of our fear response means that fear misleads us because of course that white rabbit and the white beard and the cotton ball are harmless as are many of the things we come to fear. Another way fear misleads us is that we learn what to fear, not just from our own experiences, but also by watching what the people around us fear. And that, of course, happens in early childhood for a lot of us and happens in problematic ways because many times the fears that those around us have are based on their own false stories. So all to say, 
when we have pachad kind of fear, we do not want to believe it or let it be in charge. We need to know, okay, I'm in pachad. I'm in that anticipatory fear. It is probably not accurately guiding me and I want to shift myself out of it. And you can do all kinds of practices, whether it's calming your nervous system through meditation or shifting into another energy. Like I like whenever I'm afraid to just focus on what can I be curious about in this situation? What can I get really interested in? Because if you're in curiosity, you can't simultaneously be in fear. So we always want to be looking at shifting out of pachad. Okay. The second kind of fear that is mentioned in the Old Testament is something we really don't talk about in our culture. And the word for that is yira, is the ancient Hebrew word. And that has three definitions. Yira is what we feel when we are inhabiting a larger space than we're used to. It's what we feel when we suddenly have more energy, when we come into possession of more energy than we normally have. So think about in your life, like, what lights you up, what fills you with energy, your passions, using your gifts, right? Telling your truth, whatever gives you that infusion of energy, that kind of exhilarated, scared feeling that can come with that, right? That's your ah. And the third definition is this is what we feel in the presence of the sacred. So in fact, when Moses is at the burning bush, yira is the word used to describe how he feels when he's at the burning bush. So this was very significant for me to see as a coach and as a human being, because I understood that when I was working with people and they really told the truth about what they wanted, or they made a momentous decision that really resonated, you know, with their, the core of them, this was the feeling they felt. And it, it did include fear. It also had awe and exhilaration in it. And Yura is really different than Pachad. We don't need to shift out of Yura. We kind of need to learn to tolerate it and breathe into it and not find it such a electric infusion of energy that we block it or, or numb out or avoid the things that bring it. So that is, that is the framework we use in the Playing Big model for working with fear. Well, and it's so interesting when you say Yura, if I'm if pronouncing yep. it correctly. Yeah. We say inhabiting a larger space. So this means this is kind of both literally and, and figuratively. Exactly. Exactly. So certainly, right, when people step onto a bigger stage, speak to a bigger audience, maybe stand at the front of a bigger conference room or whatever that might be, there's literal spaces and then there's the figurative, right? Like I am reaching more people or I am kind of being willing to take up more room. You can look at it that way as well. That is so cool because I really do find, so if I have a speaking engagement and I arrive there early, I actually love it. You know, when I'm in the room and it's completely empty, but there are hundreds of seats there, there is a sensation, and now I've got a word for it, thank you, that is... And I love it. It's just, it, it's just so full of possibility. And it's interesting you say presence of the sacred because it does often prompt me to pray, you know, and, and not because I'm terrified, <laughs> you know, but, but it's just like there, there's a bigness to it. And that's just sort of a natural response for me. And, and that's, that's so cool. And I think a really, you know, eye opening because maybe my personality is I'm just like, Oh yeah, I love that. Bring it on. I want some more of that in my life. And but you're saying that uh, well for for many of us, oh no, that's just too big and I, I and I can't even 
sort of uh, abide there for very long w- without kind of getting into maybe like a freak out type of sensation. Yeah. You know, that's what I find that it's both wonderful and it often feels wonderful when we're in it, but there is a quality to it of it's a heightened state. It does take us out of our comfort zone a bit. It does have that component of fear or almost breathlessness in it. Sometimes it asks us to change, right? Like you could imagine that if you were in a different career and you were only doing speaking once a year or every 18 months, and then you felt that feeling when you were speaking, when you were doing public speaking, that's telling you something about your life and your career, which you may or may not want to hear at that point, right? Because it might ask you to make some changes that require courage or trade-offs and so on. And so we do sometimes try and block the Yura or turn away from it. I think also Yura, for a lot of people, there's kind of a transcendence of the self that comes with it. And you might find when you're doing that public speaking, like you get into the zone, you get into flow state, you kind of lose the sense of Pete and you're one with the words or you're one with the audience. And then at the end, it's like, oh, where did I go? I went fully into that. And that happens for a lot of people. The things that bring them Yura, they lose their normal sense of self while they're doing them. And that's that flow state, that kind of immersion what Martin Seligman calls our gratifications. And that can be a little bit threatening to our ego sometimes because our ego likes to be, you know, I'm Tara, I'm Pete, like I'm I'm in my mundane sense of self. It doesn't really like that transcendence of self. And so that can be another reason we resist it. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So then you say that's kind of the the different prescription then in terms of with the the projected things uh, and fear, it's a matter of sort of, hey, slow it down, calm it down. And with the Yura, the, the the big stuff, it's just sort of being able to to hold on for a bit. Breathe into it, lean into it, notice what brings you it, you know, pursue those things. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now thinking more a bit about self-doubt and it popping up, you say that uh, confidence is not the the prescription or, or the answer to to self-doubt appearing. Tell us a little bit more about that and what is. Yeah. Well, just as we were talking about before, if confidence isn't coming and if the inner critic is always going to be speaking up when we are on the edge of our comfort zone, we certainly don't want to wait on confidence to do our most important work. And instead of looking for aiming for confidence, I believe we need a new relationship with our self-doubt. And so that has a couple components. The first is being aware when you are hearing your inner critic. For so many of us, the inner critic is the background noise that we live with. It's the music that has been playing in our head for a long time. We don't even hear it anymore, right? It's the water that we're swimming in. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 I've never been good at that kind of thing. Oh, those people over there are the ones who have it going on and I'm the outsider. Oh, my body, this and that. You know, Whatever your inner critic lines are, many of them become just so habitual. You don't hear them anymore or you hear them as those are true facts. So step one here is starting to be able to notice and name your inner critic. So that in those moments, you can say, I'm hearing my inner critic right now. Now, a lot of times that's enough. It's just like a mindfulness practice. That's enough to let you go, oh, if I'm hearing my inner critic, then that's certainly not the part of me I'm going to listen to. But sometimes we do need a secondary tool. And there's a whole range of things that can be effective. Sometimes for people creating a character that personifies the inner critic so they can actually see, okay, you know, my inner critic sounds like 
the perfect housewife or the stern old mean professor and really getting a visual so that when you are hearing your inner critic line, you see it as coming from that character. And all of a sudden, then there's humor and you can have perspective on it. What are some names that you've heard uh, given to the inner critics? Oh, gosh, all kinds of things. I feel like there was a year there where everywhere I would go and speak, like all the, the inner critic was always a Downton Abbey character. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm trying to think of the name, oh, right. like the, 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 evil, the wealthy folk. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or the evil folks downstairs and Downton Abbey and Harry Potter characters. And, you know, sometimes it's a random name that comes to people. And then I always have to hope there's no one else in the class with that name. <laughs> sometimes they won't write it down because it's their colleague from down the hall and they don't want in case the, their worksheet from the, the program is seen by anyone later. So Yeah. So creating a character can be useful. I really like using another tool and I'll I'll share an example of how I used it for myself. When the Playing Big book was coming out about six weeks before the publication date, I got an email from my editor at Penguin and she said, oh, Tara, great news. We've piqued the interest of the editors of the Sunday Review section of the New York Times. They'd like you to write an essay based on chapter six for their consideration for the Sunday review. So I see that and I my mouth kind of opened, fell open because I didn't even know they were pitching them or you know I had no idea that was even on the table. And my very first thoughts were, oh no, this is going to be a huge waste of time. I have an actual book launch to prepare for and a lot to do. And now I'm going to have to spend all this time like writing this piece, which we know is never going to be published because people who write for the Sunday review section sound very grown up and articulate in their writing. And Tara, you know, you've never sounded that way. (laughs) That was what the voice of my said. And that voice and those thoughts pretty much stayed cycling that way for a few days. And there were some other ones that got added in, like you can't write about this for a co-ed audience because the book had been you know, directed at women. And there's no way you can translate that chapter's topics into an op-ed. It won't make sense. Like I had piling on you know, every problem and excuse. And on the, about the fourth day of this, somewhere there was a little graced thought that flew into my head that said, you know, Tara, maybe that's your inner critic talking. Now, this is like a primary subject of the book that I have just written, but it took me four days because in our own minds, right, the inner critic always sounds like truth. But on the fourth day, and that's what I think, you know, we can get with practice. It might not be immediate, but it didn't take me six months, at least on the fourth day, the voice said, maybe that's the inner critic. And of course, internally, my response was like, no, 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 no. It can't be the inner critic. There's no way you can pull off this piece. You're writing and your voice is just not mature enough. But another voice said, you know, this kind of sounds like an inner critic. And then I use this tool, which I love, which is to say, well, what does my safety instinct not like about this situation? Because Mm -hmm. I know that my inner critic is always going to be a strategy of my safety instinct. So when I asked myself that question, what is my safety instinct not like about this situation? The whole picture looked so different to me. I could suddenly see, you know, wow, 
this is basically the worst nightmare <laughs> of an emotional safety instinct. Because in one scenario here, I'm going to write a piece that my editor thinks is not good. And I'm worried she's going to write back and be like, oh, it's not good enough. I can't pass it on. That's going to be painful. You know, another scenario is the New York Times editors say that, and that will be painful because that will, you know, make me feel like I don't measure up. And even in the best case scenario, what's my big reward is that 3 million people are going to judge what I write and have opinions about it. And that's scary for a part of us, for sure. And it can be especially, I would say, you know, even more so often for women because we are really socialized to not rock the boat and not do things that bring criticism. And I knew, you know, if I write an op-ed about some of these issues in the New York Times, there's some controversial topics, there's going to be a mixed reaction. So then I could see, okay, I get it. I get what my safety instinct doesn't like here. And I'm going to lovingly parent that part of myself and say, I get it. This feels really big and scary to you. We're going to be okay. I've got this. And you're allowed to be here with all these fears, but there's another part of me that wants to be in charge here. The part that loves writing, that wants to get these ideas out, that likes taking a seat at the table in this way. And that allowed me to proceed. Beautiful. Thank you. That's a, it's a, it's a great illustration. And talking about the, the second arrow going full circle here, you're beating yourself up, baby, uh, associated with, I'm supposed to be the expert on this and I can't even... <laughs> there may be a, a risk of, of some self, self-judgment even when you're trying to apply the tools and are aware of, of this wisdom here. Yeah. And luckily I do. That part I feel very clear on and I would offer that to people too, that you know I never have felt I need to be an expert on these things and be flawlessly playing big in my own life. I feel the opposite. I feel the only way I can stay interested in these topics and have something relevant to say about them is if I'm really grappling with them and I am compelled around these topics because I'm a fellow traveler. But I and and so I proudly use all these tools myself and always try and work my own playing big edges myself. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Tara, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I do want to mention inner mentor for a minute because I think that's such an important topic. And it's really kind of the antidote to the inner critic. It's the other voice in us that we talk about a lot in Playing Big. And the idea with the inner mentor is that rather than always seeking external mentors and looking for that person out there that has the answers for you, you come into contact with a sense of your own older, wiser self. And so in the book, we do a a guided visualization so you can meet your self 20 years in the future. And what people find is they, they don't just meet their older self, they sort of meet their elder, wise self, their authentic self. And then you can really consult and dialogue with that part of you as a mentor. And it is absolutely the best mentor you will ever have. All its answers are customized for you. It is always available to you. And so that's just been such a powerful tool. And I want to make sure people know about it because I've watched it be really, really pivotal for so many people now. That's so interesting. And and I'm right now just imagining an older, wiser Pete with a cane sitting on a log (laughs) on an autumn day. We can do that right now. So yeah. So one thing that you are finding a dilemma right now, just ask him for his perspective on it. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, so, well, the silence there. Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, just have a, a new baby. Yay. Yeah. You know, my, my first Hi, son. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I, I'm just thinking about what's prudent in, in terms of kind of growing business without, you know, spending crazy hours in, in kind of a way that would be troublesome, right? You know, for family living. And so it was only a few seconds, but kind of what I'm picking up is, is the notion that there's no need to like sprint, rush, rush, do more is kind of a, a wisdom nugget I'm, I'm starting to unpack. Yeah. There. Yeah. And it sounds like, so did he kind of give you a vibe or a perspective around this question that was a little different than what you were holding in your mind before? Well, well kind of, yes. Because sort yeah, of my yeah. instinct is to, all right, strategize. Let's figure yeah. out, you know, what is our <laughs> optimal yeah. point of leverage, you know, as, as opposed yeah. to uh, having a bit more of a, of a calm, spacious, patient view of the matter. Yeah. So Pete, that, that, it sounds like you tapped in really quickly, which is wonderful. Even without doing a longer visualization, you could just call up a picture of him and then connect with a voice that was different than that of your everyday thinking. And that's exactly it. And usually that inner mentor voice is it's more spacious, it's more calm, it's more loving, and it does give us something really different. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people will like come with a, like, I don't know, is it A or B? Is it A or B? And I'm stuck between A or B. And they talk, they check in with their inner mentor for a second. And there's a C option that comes that they didn't perceive before that feels really right and gives them kind of a new path forward. So it's an amazing tool. And it sounds like you have it like right there at your fingertips for people who want, like feel like they need a little more help. Or if you just want to have a deeper experience with that, there's an audio that you can use in a written form also in the book. But it's a great tool to tap into. Well, that is wonderful. And I'm glad you you highlighted it before we, we moved on to the next phase. And you know, it's so funny. I'm tempted. You tell me, is this a good idea or a bad idea? When it comes to the visualization, one of my knee-jerk reactions was, oh, I bet there's a website where I could put a photo of myself and see what I look like when I'm old. And I was like, hmm, on the one hand, that could be interesting and, and help bring about a picture. But on the other hand, maybe I, I won't like the picture. Yeah, I would say let your subconscious mind do it because it's sort of going back to like our dream conversation. You're going to see where this person lives, how they live, how they carry themselves. You want your right brain and your intuition to bring all that to you rather than like some computer generated <laughs> literal thing. So yeah, I'd say let your mind's eye come up, dream it up. Well, perfect. Thank you. Okay, cool. Well, well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, sure. Well, one of my favorite quotes comes from Marianne Williamson, and it is, ask to be a representative of love. So in any situation that you're feeling stressed about, and I have used this in professional situations, including before I was an entrepreneur, very traditional professional situations with amazing success and results, like going into a tense meeting where there was a lot of conflict and my prayer and inner intention was, you know, I want to be a representative of love in the room. And what that allowed me to do was get out of myself and my fear and my ego and contribute so much more value and be such a more helpful, mature voice in the room. So that's always for me, like a mantra, a favorite quote, a favorite practice. Oh, thank you. 
And how about a favorite book? I have so many, but I just finished one that I think is outstanding and that your listeners would probably really enjoy. It's called Einstein and the Rabbi. It's by Rabbi Naomi Levy. And it's really, it's a personal growth type book that is just very compelling and helpful. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of of yours that helps you be awesome at your job? One of my favorite habits is surrender, (laughs) by which I mean remembering that I'm not supposed to figure it out all on my own. So when I'm feeling overwhelmed or unclear, I can very consciously say, I don't know. I don't know what to do in this situation. I kind of, I literally physically open up my hands to the world, the greater space and say, help. And then I kind of go through my day with a sensitive listening for the insights and answers. And I find that that surrender and asking for help really changes everything. Excellent. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? I'm at taramore.com, T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R. And the Playing Big Book is available on Amazon and everywhere that books are sold. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I do. I would invite everyone to circle back to that idea we started our conversation with and ask yourself, are you being more loyal to your fears or your dreams? And what's one thing you can do today to be more loyal to your dreams? Beautiful. Well, Tara, thank you so much for for sharing this. I wish you lots and lots of luck in your coaching and and your book and, and all the cool things you're up to. Thank you. Likewise. I really love the way Tara unmasked and reframed the notion of this self-doubt and lacking confidence as being good stuff. You're on the edge of your comfort zone. You're in a space where you're going to be doing some learning and growing and expanding when you're there. And it's not going to go away later, just as the study with the executives revealed. So very handy as, as a means of kind of unmasking the lie that if only this thing changes, we'll be all good. Well, no. You're always going to be a little uncomfortable. And so knowing that you can take action and say, well, hey, that's just the way it is. And it's okay. I'm going to go there. I'm going to tackle this thing. I'm going to ask for that thing. You know, whatever that may be when you're, when you're pushing into that edge of, of growth and good stuff. So I thought that was super handy. Hope you did too. And again, if you want to check out the, the show notes, the transcripts, the links, to items we've referenced, the link there is awesomeatyourjob.com slash F267. And if you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe so you can hear from our next guest. It is Derek Lavasser. He is a former undercover detective and a winner of the TV show Big Brother. And he's got a thing or two to say about undercover detective skills, what they are, and how you can apply some of that wisdom to your daily work environment. So hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.